Hello, hello, and welcome to The Healthy Sensitive, a podcast for highly sensitive people who want to fully engage in the world, live their lives to the max, share themselves with others, but still maintain their health, their wellness, their vitality, and their sanity. A tall order for us folks, let me tell you. Anyway, in today's episode, I'll be talking about nutrition. So I'm your hostess, Leah Burkhart, your resident nutritionist. So I'm excited about this episode, although I don't anticipate that all of you followers and listeners will be quite as excited. I'll try and keep it as brief and as not so very dry as I can. Anyway, so basically what this comes down to is uh, an episode about how to eat well. And these tips that I'm about to go over today, there are five general ones and then there's a reading label tip that includes five more. So really 10 sort of key elements in total. And I really and truly think if anybody, highly sensitive or not, followed these prescriptions, they would probably fare really well. They'd have, you know, they would have healthy habits in place and all would be right in the world. Uh, It's just that highly sensitive people seem to respond especially well to regulating their blood sugar and eating balanced meals. And they seem to respond particularly poorly when they don't do these things. So my reason for this episode is to give highly sensitive people the resources, the tools to regulate their bodies optimally. And in so doing, it sort of puts them in a position where they're more likely to make the right kinds of decisions for themselves in their life. So let's get started. Um, Number one. Highly sensitive people should probably be eating small and frequent meals. Now, I don't know if this would necessarily be true if you were dealing with a highly sensitive person who lived in France. The French traditionally have breakfast, they have lunch, they have dinner, no snacks, no questions. Why would you have a snack? What's wrong with you? (laughs) But keep in mind, in France, traditionally, each meal is an experience, and the experience lasts a while. So if you took an hour and a half to two hours to eat your breakfast, it makes sense that you wouldn't be eating lunch or eating a snack in between then and lunch, you know, an hour between the two. In America, though, and in many places in Western culture, it's a very fast-paced culture, and a lot of Americans are working two, three jobs, or at least the Americans I know, and keep in mind, I live in the Bay Area, so it's even more common for us to have multiple means of (laughs) making money. So given that that's the case, our digestive capacity isn't vast, so we really fare better, better having smaller meals more often. It supports our metabolism a bit better. So what do I mean by small meals? Well, a meal, I mean, especially if you're into calories, a lot of the apps out there are more calorie driven. So you're looking at 250 to maybe 400 calories in a meal and 150 to 300 calories in a snack. Uh, So what does that look like? Um, 250 calories would be a single protein bar. 400 calories would be more of a, you know, piece of salmon, some rice and some vegetables, depending on the size of each. Um... So yeah, I mean, it really varies depending on what food items you've decided to put into your plate, but that just gives you a ballpark estimate. And that brings me down to number two. It's one thing to know the calories, but now the question is, what are those calories going to be composed of? Well, basically you want there to be two things in each meal and in every snack. You want there to have been some protein, 
And protein is going to be your meat, your dairy, your poultry, your legumes, your, you know, your soy products, your nuts, your seeds. And then you also want there to be some fiber. And your fiber is going to be coming from your fruits and vegetables, potentially from whole grains and starches if your body can handle those pretty well. So what do you get out of that? Well, let me break it down this way. There's four major macronutrients that your body identifies as it consumes food. There's simple sugars, so that's going to be your honey, your, your syrups, your actual sugar, some fruit, uh, your refined grains, so white fluffy stuff, breads, rice, pasta, things like that. That takes about a half an hour from the time that you eat it, you start chewing it, to the time when that sugar that's in the food is digested and sent out into the bloodstream. Then you have complex carbs. Those are going to be your fiber-rich foods. So that's going to be your f some fruits, mostly vegetables, grains, and starches. It takes about an hour to two to digest and for the sugar that's in those foods to get digested and thrown into the bloodstream. Uh, protein is going to take two to three hours. Uh, fat is going to take four or more. So when you eat foods that are, well, let's start with imbalanced. So you have a bagel. It's all refined white flour. It's probably 250 calories or less. I mean, it doesn't have a ton of calories in it. And you feel great after about 30 minutes. Why? Because it went to the bloodstream immediately. The only problem is, a little bit after that half an hour mark, what happens? Sugar coma. Yes, that was the right answer, if that was the answer that you gave. So, sugar comas don't feel good, especially if you're in the middle of a Tuesday and you need to get some stuff done. Uh, having said that, when you have foods that have both fiber and protein, you are inherently selecting balanced meals. And when you balance your meals, you're allowing for the digestive process to feel grounding. So if you have, say, an apple and peanut butter, well, the sugar in the apple is going to get to your bloodstream pretty quickly, so you get an immediate rush of energy. But the protein and fat in the peanut butter is going to take a little bit longer. So now you're looking at two, three, four hours. So that gives you the sense of being satiated in the moment, and then for you're left feeling good for a longer period of time. Whereas if you only ate the apple... I mean, it'd be tasty, but about half an hour later, you'd be ravenous. And then if you only ate the peanut butter, you might not feel the Im impact of that for two or three hours. This is why a lot of people, when they're on high-protein diets, will say, well, I'm not really hungry, but I don't really feel satiated. Well, it's because they don't get those carbs, so it takes two to three hours before they feel the impact of those foods. This, again, these are, this is advice I would give to just about anyone. It's just that with highly sensitive people, they're more inclined to feel those nuances. They know that they're not satiated, even if they can't describe it in those terms. And their bodies, you know, they know when their stomach is grumbling. They, they feel a bit more intensely the fatigue that comes with a food coma. And in many cases, at least for those that I speak to most often, the shame that comes with that. Oh, I can't believe I ate that. I should have known better. What's wrong with me? Why? So eating this in this balanced way sort of helps offset the possibility of getting the sugar rush and then the sugar crash. Next one. So this is now number three. It's better to eat larger portions at the start of the day and then smaller portions toward the end. So 
the most common thread I've heard on this is eat like a king in the morning, a queen in the afternoon, and a pauper at night. It doesn't have to be quite that extreme, but the metabolism is firing optimally at the start of the day and its capacity lowers by the end. So if you're eating less by the end of the day, you're helping to support that metabolism rather than work against it. So why would that be important for highly sensitive people? Again, it's important for everyone, but it's particularly helpful for HSP because if we work with our bodies rather than against, we're more likely to, I don't know, get better sleep that night because we're not going to be busy trying to digest a huge meal. And oh, everybody knows an HSP needs his or her sleep. I mean, we all do, but oh, good lord. You don't want to talk to an HSP who hasn't had a good night of sleep. They're, I don't even, I don't really want to say that they're not pleasant to be around. They just, they're just foggy. Anyway, moving on. Stay really well hydrated is number four. Honestly, once again, anybody would benefit from this. Highly sensitive people, I would only say more so because when highly sensitive people feel dehydrated, they feel those nuances sooner. They're more inclined to notice when their lips are chapped, their skin is dry, when they're feeling fatigued, when they're feeling groggy. It's just that if they don't know that that's dehydration, what do you imagine they'll reach for? Well, their body doesn't necessarily know the difference between thirst and hunger, at least not in the midst of, you know, a fog. So sometimes people will mistake it for hunger, and if you're wanting energy, they'll probably reach for cakes. Or maybe they'll take a run down to Starbucks, or Pete's, or insert coffee shop here, and they'll get some sweet coffee drink. Well, now you're dealing with a highly sensitive person who was fatigued before and now is caffeinated. <laughs> like, probably not a great idea. So you probably would want to start by staying hydrated. You'll notice many of the symptoms of discomfort that you were complaining about before dissipate. And if that doesn't help, at least you know. Number five, throw out the junk. Once again, everybody should be doing this, but the problem is it's kind of hard to discern between junk food and real food when you're looking at a food industry who's constantly trying to tout the benefits of whatever the food product is they're selling at a given time. So I've developed five rules. Um, Some of them I've picked along the way, either from Michael Pollan or from graduate school classes, and these are the five that I give uh, to read a label. So if you want to know if the food that you've selected is in fact a food, it will meet several or all of these guidelines. Number one, there should be at least three grams of fiber and or six grams of protein for every 100 calories. So an apple, check. Or an egg, check. Beans actually meet both, so that's kind of nice. Number two, there should be no sugar in the first three ingredients. Careful with this one. There's over 60 names for sugar now. Just a little while ago, there were 50, and already there are 60. Uh, If you're looking for what all of the names are, you can actually go to my website, thehealthysensitive.com, and click on the five essential nutrition tips for highly sensitive people, and I've linked a resource that you can use in order to identify sugar. Having said that, though, you really don't want to be in a position where you have to Google your ingredients. That actually brings me to number four. if, excuse me, number three, uh, if you look at the ingredients and you can't pronounce and easily identify all of them, probably best not to eat it. If I couldn't identify 
a, a berry on a bush in the jungle, I wouldn't eat it. I'm risk averse and I don't want to get sick. You should really treat the grocery store a lot like you treat the jungle. Because the food industry is not really invested in your wellness or your health. They're invested in a profit. And the FDA helps to assure the public that they're not going to get a food item that kills them on site. But there's no guarantee that what we eat, if we eat in abundance, won't eventually cause chronic conditions. So if you can't pronounce the thing, best not to eat it. Uh, number four, there should be no hydrogenated oils in the ingredients. So what's a hydrogenated oil? It's a trans fat. What's a trans fat? It's a fat that used to be a liquid and then through futzing around and fantasizing our food, we've made it a solid. Uh, margarine is an example of this. The trick with this one is some foods will say they have no trans fats, but if you look at the ingredients, hydrogenated oils are listed. That's often because the food industry does not have to actually label itself as having hydrogenated, excuse me, as having trans fats, as long as it's under a gram, which on, on the surface totally makes sense. Under a gram is, I mean, really small amount. It's just that that's a, under a gram per serving. And most of the time, the things that we put trans fats into are food items that are not easy to eat just one of. So pastries, cookies, crackers, chips. So if it has hydrogenated oils in the ingredients, you want to avoid it like the plague. Why? Trans fats aren't good for you. There's no, oh, but maybe if you just had it in moderation. Nope, not even a little bit. Back off. And finally, speaking of all of that, ideally, if you've picked up a food, you want there to be five ingredients or less. That's optimal. Now, to be very clear, I'm not saying that you can't eat the food if it doesn't meet all five criteria, but I do think it can be helpful to use this as a sort of scale. So what I tell folks is put any food that you have grabbed on a spectrum, poor, fair, good, better, and best. Poor, it meets zero of these, or maybe just one. Fair, one or two. Good, two to three. Better, three to four. And finally, best would be it meets all five. What kind of foods are going to meet all five of these rules? Generally, whole foods, as in foods with one ingredient. Apple, almond, egg, chicken breast. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there are exceptions. And obviously, when you're in a pinch, sometimes you need to have that snack bar, and that's fine. But use these guidelines as a means of discerning between, you know, what your best options are going to be. And finally, as I said in the beginning, I want to be clear, these are not super, super special, you know, prescriptions for only highly sensitive people. It's just that highly sensitive people appear to have what I call a much shorter karmic leash. When we mess up and do something stupid with our bodies, our bodies complain viciously. Our bodies don't like it when we do bad things. <laughs> so we're more likely to feel the nuances of all of that. And if not, here's the other problem. We might also be more inclined toward food addictions. I say might because I don't have enough evidence to validate that for certain. Anecdotally, I can validate this. Many of the clients I work with who are highly sensitive will tell me that they are they have a particular... Uh, addiction might be too strong a word, but yeah, an addiction to certain foods. 
because food is sort of complex to begin with. It's an emotional thing. It's a nourishing physical thing. It's experiential. It's it's all you know. It's creative. It's all over the board. So there's many reasons why we would get why we would get attached to certain foods. But the thing is, a lot of the foods that the food industry makes are designed to hijack the body. So if all you were eating was real food, and all of a sudden you got a random craving for salmon, in all likelihood, you needed something in the salmon. But if you were eating junk food, and you randomly got a, a, a craving for french fries, that's actually evidence of an addiction. And it's hard to discern between these things because the experience of them are the same. Also, highly sensitive people being the crowd pleasers that we are and living in the highly stimulating world that we do often are more likely to use food as a crutch in order to get through the day. I mean, think about it. Highly sensitive people are more easily drained by a lot of stimuli and yet we're living in a world that gets increasingly stimulating. Exciting, but also stimulating. So we get drained quickly. But we want to be perfect. Our perfectionistic qualities insists as much. And we want to please people. We can kind of get a sense pretty quickly what people want from us and we want to deliver. Well, if we've run out of energy and it's only the middle of the day and we're trying to sort of coast through, we'll reach for comfort foods because those foods dull the senses cakes and pastries and chips and refined carbs. They dull us. They slow us down. But they give us just enough ah to get through. It's sort of like a very, very tiny dose of Xanax. (laughs) So because of that fact, given that our bodies are so attuned or maybe given that we are so attuned to our bodies, I don't know how you would want to frame that, it's even more important that we regulate our bodies because when we regulate our bodies, we bring more capacity to every moment. We have, a gr- we have greater ability to be deliberate in the choices that we make. If our blood sugar is stable and we're not in two-year-old status mode, when we're not hangry, we're human. <laughs> like, and we make good choices. So... Yeah, I mean, ultimately, at the end of all of this, do the kinds of things that all people should be doing. If you do them, though, as a highly sensitive person, what you can look forward to is a much quicker response and a much more intensely positive result. So I know I just went through a lot with all of this, um, and it's dry, and I don't imagine that it's super duper exciting for, you know, anyone except for people like me who are obsessed with nutrition and health and all of that good stuff. So if you have any questions or feedback for me, or if there's anything you'd like me to go over in more detail, um, please reach out to me, you know, either through the, you know, directly through the podcast, or you can go to my uh, website, thehealthysensitive.com. Love to hear from you one way or the other. And at any rate, I, you know, I certainly hope that you have a great week. I look forward to staying in touch and uh, yeah. Stay well, be well.